love you, Lord. I thank you so much for the Iron Show and for my friends, Johnny and Rick, Lord. Father, I thank you. I love you, Lord. I love you so much, Jesus. Good evening, my fellow Americans. Ten days we face a hostile ideology, globalist scope, atheistic in character, ruthless in purpose, and insidious in method. The Ascendancy of the Scientific Dictatorship. Available now at Amazon.com. The 2006 Book Surge Edition is available in an expanded and revised form, which includes some of their predictions that are now coming to pass, such as the demographic winter, the population implosion, and the fall of the European Union. Articles by the Collins Brothers, available at www.conspiracyarchive.com. Click on the articles link, then look for contributing authors, then look for Paul and Philip Collins. Collins Brothers on Audio. Click the blog link at www.conspiracyarchive.com. You will see a comprehensive list of archived audio interviews with Paul and Philip Collins. Also check out the podcast, The Collins Brothers Unleashed, at Podomatic.com. Go to Podomatic.com and enter the Collins Brothers Unleashed in the search box. Thank you. Hey, welcome to the Iron Show. It's your boy Johnny. I am down here pounding the old anvil with my host, co-host. <laughs> What's up, Johnny? Hey, not much, not much, man. We're down here, and we are with Philip Collins in studio, and I would like to welcome everybody to the 15th official Iron, Iron Show. What's up? Hey, Johnny, it's not, you've come a long way so far. Yeah, we're in here, and uh, you might notice that we sound a little bit different because we are using our new recording method. And uh, in the Iron Show studio and in the San Diego Iron Show studio, simultaneously laying down our tracks, we are so honored on Iron Show 15 to bring you uh, a very, uh, very astute and uh, very smart individual. Uh, he's a journalist. He is a, uh, he is a uh, kind of a, uh, kind of almost a. You might even call him a. A good theologian. Yeah, a theologian, a, a political and Christian commentator. Yes, yes. Who wrote the book, The Ascendancy of the Scientific Dictatorship. Yes. And we are so honored to have in the Iron Show studio... Phil Buckeye is frozen to the core, so... I grew up in Kent. Oh, really? 
Were you at Kent State for the Kent State riot? Yeah, my uh, my dad was there uh, getting a master's degree in special education, uh, teaching the deaf, and uh, yeah, he was uh, he was there at the Kent State riot. Um, Holy mackerel! Wow. So so he saw he saw the entire the entire bloodbath. Yeah, he was there. He uh, he kept it real low. That that must have smelled so. <laughs> yeah, that kind of started the whole thing in the '60s. Yeah, that was something. Yeah, Phil, uh, you're kind of a uh, what I would call a uh, Christian and uh, political commentator, and uh, even a Christian commentator, and uh, even a uh, even a uh, political Christian commentator, and a. Uh, Christian political commentator. Uh, you're a journalist, uh, and you wrote the book, The Ascendancy of the Scientific Dictatorship. And uh, in that book, uh, you really lay down the uh, idea of the technocracy or a uh, uh, technocratic society. Uh, you want to dig us into that a little bit? You want to kind of uh, explain the background and uh, maybe the roots, maybe the roots of the uh, idea of the uh, technocracy? Sure, absolutely. Well, the, the term technocracy, um, of course, the, it, it basically connotes politically uh, a system of governance where uh, the uh, basically all the, uh, the, all the uh, basic functions of government are uh, left upon the shoulders of a cognitive elite, uh, uh, basically experts, people who lay claim to the right to rule by virtue of their specialized knowledge, their scientific knowledge, their uh, technical knowledge. And of course, uh, in such a uh, societal model, uh, democracy is, uh, democracy for a broader constituency ceases to exist. It becomes uh, more of a consolidated democracy. It, it, it's a democracy of uh, experts, as H.G. Uh, Wells put it in the uh, Open Conspiracy. Uh, basically, it's the uh, only the experts uh, take part in uh, the democratic pr uh, processes. And meanwhile, those who uh, do not exhibit the specialized knowledge, uh, uh, those who aren't part of this uh, coterie of policy professionals, uh, are completely and totally divorced from the democratic uh, system. The, the, the uh, concept of a te technocracy really finds its uh, proximate origins with Sir Francis Bacon. Uh, who oh, was, yeah. Yeah. He, he was a member of a uh, secret society. He was basically a member of a secret society called uh, the Order of the Helmet, and the uh, oh yeah well well it, the, which is 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 closely aligned with Rosicrucianism. I'll, I'll give you some background. It, was that a precursor to Rosicrucianism? Yeah, yeah. For all practical purposes, the 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 uh, organization, the Order of the Helmet, uh, its name was derived from uh, Pallas Athene, which was the Greek uh, goddess of of wisdom, who was oh, yeah. portrayed wearing a uh, helmet, and although. Uh, uh, Bacon was regarded as this innovator of uh, science by, you know, orthodox academia. His studies m mostly embraced, uh, mostly uh, embraced uh, occultism. And in his youth, he was a student of uh, Gnosticism, uh, Hermeticism, Neoplatonist uh, philosophy, and he had al also studied the uh, Kabbalah. But um, could we stop right there and uh, have you uh, explain for our listeners uh, what Gnosticism is and kind of talk about the things that uh, Francis Bacon actually uh, believed? Sure, sure. Well, Gnosticism, 
the the term is derived from the Greek term nostikos, which means uh, knowing. Um, and it's uh, the 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 Gnostics were an ancient Christian heresy which posited uh, gnosis or nostikos in uh, contradistinction to what in the original Greek was known as uh, pistis or faith. And um, basically, the, the Gnostics held that uh, the div- uh, that uh, the pneuma of man, the pneumatikos, yeah. that is the spirit of man. Spirit, yeah. Was, it's like evolution to this day, sort of, isn't it? It's very similar to that. Yeah, very, it? it's very similar. The, yeah. the 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 pneuma of man was was separated from the divine pneuma by uh, the uh, by uh, the the physical cosmos, his 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 placement his placement here within in the uh, physical cosmos, and uh, man was was basically thrust into this uh, into this prison of sorts by. Uh, an evil, uh, uh, evil, unjust, uh, tyrannical uh, god, which, uh, for all practical purposes, according to, according to their inverted uh, hermeneutic, was Jehovah, uh, and Jehovah in turn was uh, really created by Sophia, which uh, w- uh, was uh, in the uh, ancient Greek uh, meant wisdom. And here you have this veneration for for uh, for knowledge, for the cognitive powers of man. And basically, they believed that through gnosis, through the cognitive powers of man, uh, uh, he, basically humanity could attain its own salvation. And here we have what, what could be called an anthropocentric soteriology. And the, the term soteriology, I'll dismantle that for the audience, it comes from the, 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 the word soter. Jesus declared himself the soter, the savior. And so... Soteriology deals with the study of salvation, and w- with an anthropocentric soteriology. Anthro meaning uh, man, uh, centric meaning man, uh, centered, so man-centered salvation. The the uh, uh, with an anthropocentric soteriology, man becomes the source of his own salvation. You you see this sort of uh, you see this sort of uh, belief espoused by uh, Protagoras. Uh, who basically held that man was the measure of all things, but uh, Gnosticism uh, kind of assumed a, a plethora of uh, forms uh, uh, after the uh, Enlightenment. It was during the Enlightenment, uh, which of course was virulently anti-Christian, that we saw the codification of Gnosticism as a revolutionary doctrine. And um, it, it was through this codification that, uh, of Gnosticism that we saw the emergence of uh, two forms of, uh, well, several forms of secular uh, Gnosticism, two of the most prevalent being communism and fascism. But you, ha- you had uh, the emergence of, of sociopolitical utopian movements such as those uh, who, who, again, had this uh, anthropocentric soteriology where man became the, the, the measure of all things. He attained his own salvation through his own cognitive powers. And um, interestingly not enough, with uh, uh, communism and fascism, you find uh, within those two systems of, uh, of uh, governance, within those political theories, you find strands of technocratic thought, which again, you know, hails from Sir Francis Bacon. And uh, allegedly Bacon, and this is returning to your statement regarding the Rosicrucians, allegedly Bacon was the Grand Master of the secret uh, Rosicrucian order, and the uh, Rosicrucians were closely uh, aligned with uh, Freemasonry. In fact, uh, a Rosicrucian poem 
that was written in uh, 1638 uh, basically read, quote, For what we presage is not in gross, for we brethren of the rosy cross, we have the mason's word and second things to come, we can foretell aright, unquote. In other words, the Rosicrucians believed that they knew the uh, inner secrets of Freemasonry and uh, also possessed uh, psychic powers which they could uh, predict the future with. But it was in six, uh, 1627 that Bacon published a novel entitled The New Atlantis. And interestingly enough, within the pages of this book, we find symbols such as the uh, two pillars of Solomon's Temple and the Blazing Triangle, the Eye of God, the Compass and the Square, all of which indicate uh, that uh, Bacon had some association with secret societies that uh, basically proffered some equivalent of his utopian concepts. And that novel, The New Atlantis, described the creation of an invisible college, which was the very same sort of uh, institution that was advocated in uh, Rosicrucian writings. And Aren't those two pillars, uh, which is a lot of this stuff is uh, based on, Aren't those the first things that were uh, uncovered uh, after the flood by Nimrod oh, and his gang? Uh, you know, but you could be very well be onto something there and everything. Now, being not being too uh, familiar with biblical archaeology, I'm not. I'm not. You know, I'm not quite sure and everything. But the uh, the the interesting the interesting thing to note about you know the pillars of Solomon and what have you is is that. Uh, Solomon himself uh, had, be, you know, become something of anybody who reads the scriptures know he had, he had, uh, he had asked for wisdom from God, and God gave it to him, and and he was a he was a just ruler for a time, but after a while he had fallen into something of an, an anthropocentric soteriology, basically venerating his own cognitive powers as his, the source of his own salvation, and and you know eventually. You know, became became uh, a bit of a hedonist. Uh, you know, and and eventually came to the end of himself and said, "It's all vanity and everything." So, but one of the things that you know that people should understand is is when these uh, esoteric secret societies and the uh, socio political utopian movements that were basically spawned from them when they cite uh, biblical iconography when they cite certain pieces of scripture. They're basically ripping those icons and they're ripping those pieces of scripture from the uh, matrix of a broader biblical gestalt and they're superimposing upon them their own esoteric interpretations. They're they're basically reconceptualizing uh, uh, biblical iconography and the scriptures uh, within a distinctly occult uh, context, and so for for the Freemasons and for the Rosicrucians, these these signs and these symbols meant something entirely different uh, than than what they would mean for you know say for Christians such as us. Almost like the uh, the voodoo practitioners uh, from Africa uh, when they became slaves, they uh, they kept their ancient African uh, voodoo religion and. Uh, they they used uh, Catholicism to mask it. Right. Uh, you know uh, the saints, the Catholic saints, uh, were uh, secretly their different uh, loa voodoo gods. They used the Catholic saints as a uh, oh a, a mask over the uh, over the actual voodoo religion, so nobody knew they were they were actually vo- uh, voodoo Vodun. Right. Right. Ex- exactly. And if if you look at, for instance, uh, a lot of. Uh, a lot of uh, uh, socialist theoreticians did the same thing. Antonio Gramsci, 
uh, asserted that um, they, uh, socialism could be uh, more uh, effectively uh, more effectively promoted uh, if it were veiled in uh, Christian iconography. But uh, you know, of course, all of the traditional uh, all of the traditional theistic uh, concepts of Christianity had to be jettisoned. So you had Christianity completely eviscerated, all of uh, disemboweled, all of its metaphysical contents removed, but the iconography remained in place. And, and that's necessary. Uh, that's necessary when you take into account the uh, the nature of the human condition. The uh, the human spirit abhors a vacuum. Yes. Uh, uh, abhors a, a spiritual vacuum. It abhors a vacuum, and one of the reasons being is is that uh, as uh, anybody who's you know studied philosophy, uh, you know as I have, I, I have a, a minor in philosophy, and that was one of my my passions, it kind of drives Paul nuts because when Paul remains more firmly fixed on historical concretes and I float around in the philosophical ether a lot, but uh, one of the things that a person <laughs> who, who does a philosophical critique of atheism realizes is that atheism is a philosophical impossibility because in order to uh, conclude with all certainty that there is absolutely no God, one has to lay claim to infinite knowledge. You know, and infinite knowledge, of course, is constitutive of omniscience. Omniscience is a trait that is uh, inherent to deity. And so in order to say there is no God, one has to lay claim to a trait of divinity, thereby becoming God. And you see this, you see this with, uh, uh, you see this sort of uh, radical devonization, if you will, this, this, this apotheosis of man with uh, uh, socialist theoreticians such as Marx and Feuerbach, who basically interpreted God as the projection of all the very best features of humanity into this hypostatic beyond. They believed that that all that God was was the the inherent goodness of man, mythologized by man and and given a name, the name being God. So and basically, it's the proto-evangel all over again, anyway. Right. Right. And according to Marx and Feuerbach, they had this emanatist uh, uh, eschatology. They believed that yeah. history would reach its apex when man would realize his own alleged intrinsic divinity and draw this projection of God back into himself and be transfigured into Superman or, or apotheosis. That means to become a god and everything. So uh, and and again, this is this this is this is older. This these are older ideas. That, that actually come out of uh, occult theology. Um, those sort of ideas were were promoted by the uh, Rosicrucians, by the uh, Freemasons, um, and uh, and of course the, the, they were supposed to be promulgated through you know what was known as the Invisible College, which was precise precisely what uh, Francis Bacon was speaking about in his uh, novel The New Atlantis. He talked about the creation of this of the Invisible College and. Uh, the creation of uh, an invisible college was realized with the formation of the uh, British Royal Society in 1660. Um, and it's interesting because you look at the British Royal Society, and what it what the British Royal Society basically amounted to was what Paul and I call an epistemological cartel. Now that's a mouthful. I'll, I'll dismantle that for the audience. Basically, epistemology is one of the two core pursuits 
of theoretical philosophy. It's the study of knowledge and what's constitutive of knowledge. The terms derived from the Greek word episme, which means knowledge. And there is an epistle, and interestingly enough, there's a, an epistemological dimension to science, as is evidenced by the etymology of the field itself. The word science is derived from the Latin word scientia, which also means knowing or knowledge. Yeah. In many ways, epistemology, it, it, it works a lot like a, an economic system. If you have all the right theoreticians in all the right places, then you can arbitrarily bestow epistemological primacy, uh, complete and total epistemological dominance upon those ideas that are most socially and politically expedient to you. And in such a climate of epistemological suppression, Institutional and academic barriers prevent competitors from accessing the, idea, the uh, marketplace of ideas. So you, you, you basically have developed a monopoly over epistemology. Uh, and, and you basically, a self-proclaimed cognitive elite monopolizes the economy of popular thought, and hence we have an epistemological cartel, which is essentially a monopoly over knowledge. Cartel epistemologists not only manage the dissemination of knowledge, but also arbitrarily determine what qualifies as knowledge and what qualifies as mere opinion. And of course, epistemological contentions ultimately shape the second core pursuit of theoretical philosophy, which is metaphysics. And metaphysics is concerned with the ultimate character of reality. The questions asked by uh, the epistemologist determine what items will be admissible in discourses concerning metaphysics. And thus, epistemology shapes one's views concerning reality itself. So you look at that at the, uh, the British uh, Royal Society, which was, for all practical purposes, an epistemological cartel, uh, a tangible enactment of the uh, Invisible College as it was promoted by the Rosicrucians, and as it was depicted by uh, Francis Bacon in the New Atlantis, what was the what were the metaphysical contentions uh, that um, that the uh, British Royal Society? Uh, what were the, the 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 metaphysical contentions that it was trying to legitimize through its monopoly over knowledge? Well, let's take a look at what was promoted by uh, the 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 British Royal Society. Um, one of the uh, British Royal Society's uh, uh, primary, uh, primary uh, chief theoreticians and, and luminaries was none other than T.H. Huxley, Darwin's bulldog. And uh, he, basically, T.H. Huxley... Wait, could you, could, you, could you say that name again? It dropped out. Sure, sure. T.H. Huxley. T.H. Huxley mm, was, yeah. of course... Uh, 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 Darwin's Huxley. bulldog, or yeah, Thomas Huxley, and of course the grandfather of Julian Huxley and Aldous Huxley, and Aldous Huxley, of course, would who uh, invaded Christopher Columbus Langdell, right? Right. <laughs> who made the lawyer who made evolution popular during the was it the uh, what was the, the Snopes trials? Yeah. Uh, well, the Snopes trial that was uh, that was uh, 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 mainly Clarence Darrow. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Who, motivated by that, uh, Mister Who changed from common law to what the what they call it the case law. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and 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 In the same vein, yeah. Right, and everything. Right. But 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 uh, T. H. Huxley 
played a major role in uh, basically prompting Darwin, who was a recluse, to uh, publish The Origin of the Species. And, of course, what did The Origin of the Species do? Well, The Origin of the Species presented this theory of... Uh, this theory of progressive biological development or evolution, yeah. which... Yeah, can I say something real quick? Did, sure. Didn't Darwin... Actually, it wasn't Darwin that really made it popular. It was actually a Darwin, but it wasn't uh, Charles. It was his grandfather wrote a book. I can't think of the name of it. Well, but, oh, uh, Zoonomia. You're thinking yeah. of... Yeah. Uh, interesting little story behind, uh, yeah. behind him. That's Erasmus Darwin. Uh, Erasmus Dar yeah. Darwin uh, uh, actually, uh, and and if you look at these 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 uh, theories of evolution, uh, uh, they they preceded uh, Darwin. Uh, the, oh yeah. Uh, it, it, basically, evolution was uh, the evolutionary theory was another permutation of what's known as transformism, and transformism held that humanity was inherently mutable. That is, that he changed, and um, transformism. Uh, uh, held uh, not only did, did it, it hold uh, uh, just uh, far-reaching ramifications in terms of human biology, but it held uh, far-reaching ramifications in terms of society. It, it because uh, the, the ideas uh, of transformism circulated heavily during the Enlightenment, which was the precursor to uh, the uh, French Revolution. Um, and uh, the uh, according to transformism, you know, man's biological changes also translated over into political and social changes. And so, so, so you have you had uh, a, you had a biological evolution taking place, and at the same time, a corresponding political evolution taking. Yeah, place. I just I just kind of read I, I read that this last night on uh, Augustine was going through. How how uh, from one father Adam, we had all these deformities in mankind, you know, like people that were born, you know, hermaphrodites, and he was explaining exactly the same thing that people have taken that, and uh, you know, and it's like the religion of the semen, actually. Mm -hmm. is, is, would that be correct? Oh, to to a certain extent, yeah. And yeah. I think I mean, it, he didn't go that far, but he was saying that it's still the ideas. It, he calls it he calls it the city of man. Instead of the city of God, the same all these ideas that you're throwing out. You know, he, he says that it's where it started, but you're talking about the the evolution. Is it really is it really based on like what they all believe? It's from the goo. It's from our. That's where they base it on, don't they? Yeah, essentially, what the you know it's 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 kind of based on on the Kabbalistic legend of the golem, which. You know, the Kabbalistic legend of the Golem presented a, an artificially created man, a, a synthetically created man. And according to that uh, Kabbalistic legend, uh, living and dead matter were basically inseparable and everything. And, and all life sprung from uh, matter. And so matter became a god unto itself. And you see these, this sort of, uh, you see this sort of uh, occult, uh, this occult strand of thought. Uh, running throughout the uh, thesis of abiogenesis, uh, life springing from non-life, which of course Louis Pasteur proved was scientifically impossible. You just there, there no, no spontaneous generation can take place. No, uh, dead matter cannot produce uh, living matter. But but what that did in terms of metaphysics, which again deals uh -huh. with the ultimate nature of reality itself, 
is it ontologically divorced man from God. God no longer played any sort of role uh, in uh, the the uh, creation of man. Uh, if if at best you have a deistic God, a, a deistic spirit, a, an absentee landlord who simply set the process of evolution into motion and uh the, and just simply ma- let uh, allowed man to you know emerge from the slime and begin his uh climb ever upward onward uh moving towards his you know working towards his own salvation and th- there we have again the anthropocentric sal- soteriology exactly. of Gnosticism, and or theistic evolution. <laughs> yeah, and, and and that's why uh, I believe it's uh, Doctor uh, Wolfgang Smith. He refers ah. to uh, to Darwinism as uh, he refers to it as a Gnostic myth because it pays credence to the uh, Gnostic uh, doctrine of self salvation with the metaphysical claim of self-creation, abiogenesis, spontaneous yeah. generation. And, and that's the only way that, that you know, the anthropocentric soteriology of Gnosticism uh, will ha- attain any sort of semblance of sense is if you have the, the, the notion of, of uh, man creating himself. And therefore, he's, he, he's responsible for his own salvation. He attains it through his own cognitive powers, and he gradually, uh, through Gnosis, uh, works towards apotheosis, towards becoming a god, and everything. Now, uh, the 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 tra- uh, traditional theistic concepts such as salvation and immortality are reconceptualized in a purely immanent sense. And I'll I'll, I'll, I'll dismantle that term for the audience. Immanentism. Yeah, it's exactly. It's derived from the uh, term uh, immanence, which is from the Latin phrase in manere, which means to remain within. Mm. Objects of immanent experience reside purely within the experiential limits of man, within the, the ontological confines of the physical universe, because... It, it, because as immanent objects, you don't you don't require faith to apprehend their existence and everything. And here again, you have you know the Gnostic derision for pistis or or faith and everything, and and the the the, the uh, veneration for Gnosticos for for knowing for direct knowing. And so so you have uh, so this is this is basically the 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 sort of metaphysics. That uh, the uh, Royal Society was uh, were were endeavoring to through their epistemological cartel, the the Royal Society was basically endeavoring to legitimize. And <laughs> you now now you you might think, well, that sounds a, a wee bit conspiratorial and everything. Well, uh, before before we before <laughs> before I you know fly off into to you know some sort of uh, you know, paranoid uh, left field. Let, let me make it clear. Uh, one might argue that uh, the Royal Society was little more than a collection of naive Baconians who basically, you know, basically believed in an oversimplified epistemology of empirical science, which was devoid of intention, devoid of hypotheses, as Newton put it, the uh, hypotheses non fingo. However, there was an inner circle within the Royal Society, which uh, the writers uh, James Moore and Adrian Desmond characterized as, quote, 
a sort of Masonic Darwinian Lodge invisible to outsiders, unquote. And by the way... Oh, so it's very similar to the priest of... Uh, of of um, Egypt, the ones that they had their inner circle, there was the pharaoh, but they they had their inner circle, right? Where you know when uh, during Tutankhamun when he was alive, and he was too young, they were running the show behind the scenes, right? Exactly. Are you saying that there was uh, some kind of uh, inner cabal uh, that was mystical and like religious in nature, and this inner cabal was actually controlling this uh, outer? Uh, materialistic and uh, scientific uh, organization? Well, well, here's the thing. They, they, their, their belief system is in, was inherently religious in character, or whether or not they would have cared to admit it, uh, admit it because anybody who, who, uh, who uh, studies uh, radical empiricism, which was what they were as Baconians, they were radical empiricists. They realized that uh, radical empiricism, that is the belief that knowledge is attained through the senses exclusively, uh, that, that leads to a rejection of causality, and through the rejection of causality, we basically have uh, the uh, adoption of faith um, because science of, relies on the affirmation of cause and effect relationships, and if you have no causality, then basically all of uh, all of uh, the uh, uh, empirically discerned world becomes analogous to a, a an amorphous hologram, and and we can only we can only assume we can only uh, suppose that uh, A is causing B. So so for all practical purposes, there there was a, a there was a religious character to their belief uh, to you know to their beliefs and uh it's science science uh, well here's i don't know it it sounded like you said that anyway no, science is the science is of course the latin root scientia which means knowing and everything that therefore it's it that we see this epistemological dimension uh, dimension to science science and religion were were never uh, at first were not separate repositories of knowledge no, not in the beginning. They uh, they always went hand in hand. Right. They it, it, they simply they they were just they were they were just simply there were just simply different forms of epistemology that that worked in correspondence with one another. Um, um, for instance, uh, faith, which is you know the you know the the preeminent uh, the preeminent component of uh, religion. Faith is uh, again derived from the Greek word pistis, which uh, was also used by Aristotle, who wrote extensively on science. And uh, uh, Aristotle used that term pistis to connote forensic proof. And if you look at uh, the very first uh, sermon delivered by Peter in the Book of Acts, <laughs> he offers proofs. He offers evidentiary claims, evidence-based claims uh he uh, for the uh for uh the faith he cites uh the empty tomb of uh Jesus Christ he cites the fulfillment of old testament uh prophecy he cites uh miracles so it's not blind faith which would essentially be superstition it's it's an evidentiary based faith the problem Amen. is and, and and then science science affirms that through uh, quantification and through you know through uh, through uh, empirically discerned uh, empirically discerned studies, 
um, the problem is is that there was a bifurcation between uh, you know between those two epistemologies, bifurcation or, or a division. With yeah, right, right there around the time of Charles Darwin. Well, actually, it even preceded Dar- Darwin. Believe it or not, it w- and this is the sad part. This is oh, it goes, it goes. Irenaeus against heresies wrote on your very subjects. Yeah, well, yeah, didn't that really come from uh, the alchemists? Didn't they start those ideas? Well, it really began with the uh, it really began with the nominalist, uh, yeah. uh, foremost of which being uh, uh, Occam. Um, um, the nominalist base uh, the b- nominalist b- basically uh, b- basically promoted this bifurcation in epistemology between what is revealed revelation you know what is believed and then what is quantifiably demonstrable what is measurable what is what can be measured and and as a result you had this this division between revelation and, and empirically and quantifiably demonstrable phenomena, and because revelation was completely and totally separate from that, and revelation was confined to uh, the realm of uh, the realm of the spirits, uh, it was it was revelation was given by God. Um, it, it, the 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 objective character of God was rendered completely and totally uh, unknowable, and thus completely and totally subjective. And that's and you had with this with this bifurcation in epistemology this slippery slope to this belief that anything that is quantifiably and empirically demonstrable is constitutive of truth, and that's that for all practical purposes is scientism. Scientism uh, basically is a preoccupation with quantifiable entities. If it cannot be quantified, if it cannot be empirically discerned. Then, uh, on the on the grounds of metaphysics, it simply does not exist, and uh, and basically, scientism it, it, it called for the uh, universal uh, imposition of science on all fields of inquiry, including morality, governance, and the problem with that is is that you know many a many a modern mind being you know being chronocentric as it is you know seeing all the modern wonders of science might consider that sort of imposition desirable but the problem is is that what what entities fall outside the realm of of quantification what sort of entities cannot be uh, empirically or quantifiably demonstrated well dignity liberty you know <laughs> freedom uh, uh, the the spirit of man because you know because those entities cannot be quantified they're simply jettisoned and and herein you have the beginnings of of uh, of uh, what could be considered the scientific dictatorship where, where science is universally imposed on on uh, on uh, the whole of the social body and as a result those concepts of liberty of of democracy of dignity uh, are are all jettisoned because they simply do not fit, uh, they simply do not fit the measuring stick. But um, returning to the uh, the British Royal Society and to examine how it operated as an epistemological car- cartel and and to examine the conspiratorial uh, the conspiratorial aspects of the organization again not not every uh, not every uh, fellow of the British Royal Society was, you know, a member of some high cabal. Many of them were probably naive Baconians, but 
again, according to James Moore and Adrian Desmond, there was this uh, Masonic Darwinian Lodge that was invisible to insiders within uh, the uh, Royal Society, and that inner circle was the X Club. And its members wielded a substantial amount of influence over every famous scientist at the time. All of its members, except uh, Herbert Spencer, were secretaries of, or presidents of learned societies, and it was none can other. I say, well, can I say it's the ones that built that big, huge thing in, in uh, London, the, the, the evolutionist cathedral? <laughs> I've been there. So. Yeah, and, and, and isn't, it interest, <laughs> isn't it interesting how they, they use uh, religious uh, iconography uh, to uh, communicate the message of an ostensibly non-theistic uh, well, non uh, anti teleological and non yeah. non mystical belief system, but T H uh, teleology definitely they're just trying to use you know yeah exactly but but it was none other than T H Huxley who presided over the X Club, which manipulated the scientific press. Uh, one of the most prevalent examples of the X Club's uh, media manipulation was its obfuscation of the Bathybius Haeckeli scandal. Uh, it was discovered that uh, Bathybius Haeckeli, which uh, many an evolutionist at the time were contending was the missing Monera, the, the primordial organic material from which all uh, life sprung. Um, it was discovered that that was nothing more than gypsum, a lifeless rock, and not the missing Monera in Ernest Haeckel's phylogenetic tree. And once that was discovered, the X-Club suppressed almost every revelation of the debacle. Uh, and remember, the X-Club was presided over by T.H. Huxley, who was a Freemason and a participant in the formation of the Rhodes Roundtable uh, uh, groups. Now, the uh, Roundtable groups were devoted to the formation of a British-ruled form of global governance, and out of the roundtable uh, groups would come the Royal Institute for the uh, International Affairs, or the RIIA, and the RIIA would establish a stateside branch here in the United States known as the Council on Foreign Relations, or the CFR. And this organization has acted as America's premier foreign policy cartel and a major catalyst for globalization. And globalism in the words of the late uh, Malachi Martin, qualified. Ah. Father Martin, he's my hero. The greatest exorcist that ever lived. Father Martin, Malachi Martin. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Father Martin, he was, uh, you know, Malachi Martin. Uh, I, I, I gave you an iPod with uh, Father Martin uh, interviews on it. Uh, yeah, he was uh, a Jesuit, ex-Jesuit priest. Um, he was. Uh, he died back in 1999. He's very famous, a prolific author, wrote tons of books, and uh, he was an honest to God, God fearing Catholic exorcist. And uh, yeah, Father Martin, he was a real man of God. And and yeah, uh, but but uh, globalization, according to Malachi Martin, qualified as quote socio political Darwinism unquote. Because it was, it's premised upon the belief that global governance is the natural corollary of man's alleged political evolution. And of course, the Bathybius Haeckeli scandal imperiled the veracity of Darwin's claims, which in turn provided the scientific foundation for the global society that Huxley and his Masonic colleagues hoped to see enshrined. But at any rate, 
The Royal Society exemplifies the concept of an epistemological cartel. Society members like uh, Huxley managed the dissemination of knowledge, which in turn shaped the metaphysical suppositions of others, and such metaphysical suppositions underpin the anthropocentric soteriology of sociopolitical utopians, secular Gnostics, the new Gnostics, uh, who adhered to a secular mythology. And in the beginning of that secular mythology, Eden was a singularity, which was eventually divided into countless pluralities by the Big Bang. And according to the myth, the reconstitution, the, 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 the regaining of Eden, paradise regained, uh, was achieved through evolution, which inv- invariably requires the the assistance of man uh, through uh, uh, the, through uh, several different uh, uh, biological methodologies, namely population control, eugenics, uh, social methodologies such as fascism, communism, or other forms of sociopolitical utopianism. And as evolution is guided down the desired course. Man returns to the singularity, returns to Eden. Eden is reborn, but Eden is completely and totally confined to this ontological plane of existence. Immortality is attainable only through the continuity of the species. Salvation is reconceptualized as survival, and uh, the, the Eden is, is completely and totally reconceptualized as a uh, global government, and a unified world consciousness. Good evening, my fellow Americans. Ten days ago, we face a hostile ideology, global in scope, atheistic in character, ruthless in purpose, and insidious in message. The ascendancy of the scientific dictatorship. Available now at Amazon.com. The 2006 Book Surge Edition is available in an expanded and revised form, which includes some of their predictions that are now coming to pass, such as the demographic winter, the population implosion, and the fall of the European Union. Articles by the Collins Brothers, available at www.conspiracyarchive.com. Click on the articles link, then look for contributing authors, then look for Paul and Philip Collins. Collins Brothers on audio. Click the blog link at www.conspiracyarchive.com. You will see a comprehensive list of archived audio interviews with Paul and Philip Collins. Also check out the podcast, The Collins Brothers Unleashed, at Podomatic.com. Go to Potomatic.com and enter the Collins Brothers Unleashed in the search box. Thank you. And that so was once again we come right back to deism. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's it. It's just you just said deism and you explain every aspect of what it could be. Exactly. Of global governance and, and it, it, it's nothing has changed really. Right. Nothing no. has changed. It's. Uh, Augustine says it, this is the city of man. This is the full, you know, it's even if they believe in God or not. You right. Know, they right. came, it's like he says that here we have the heart of the earthly city. It is God or gods, is he or they who will help the city to victory after victory and to a reign of earthly peace. 
Exactly. And this city worships not because it has a love for service, but its passion is for domination. Remember, right. you, you said that on the PID radio. Right, exactly. You're, at, you're, at, you're right on target. Yeah, you're right on target. Wow, see, that's just cool because that's why I started getting into Augustine really heavily. And I was praying that I would understand, you know, of course, Irenaeus is who I'm going after next because I'm going to his favorite. That's why Augustine, I, I love him. Have you, have you read City of God? I I had to read it a while back for uh, golly what what it was uh, one of my philosophy courses. And really, it, how'd you like it? Did you? I mean, it's, it's, actually, it's really deep, isn't it? Yeah, and and actually, what you've been pointing out about Augustine was pointed out to to Paul and I by uh, an old friend of ours. He's he's uh, deceased now. He passed away in 2007. Uh, uh, a, a good friend by the name of uh, Michael Corbin. He used to. Yeah. Uh, Host, uh, I'm familiar with him too. Yeah, yeah. He he was a he was a great friend. One of the best uh, one of the best uh, uh, radio show hosts that we ever associated with. But he pointed out the exact same uh, things that uh, you point out about uh, the city of man and the concept of the city of man. And and really, if you look at uh, socio political utopianism, which for all practical mm-hmm. purposes is just a form of secular gnosticism. Um, with yeah. a manatist uh, eschatology, um, uh, uh, <laughs> throughout the ages, socio-political utopians have reiterated this this concept of of a global society of of a of a city of man, so to speak, under numerous appellations. Um, um, it's it's been disseminated under various different uh, names. Uh, <laughs> for instance, uh, you had a. Uh, 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 you had uh, uh, H.G. Wells, um, who, interesting, as interestingly enough, was closely aligned with T.H. Uh, Huxley. Um, um, and, uh, he wrote the New World Order, right? He referred to it as the, as the New Republic. He also referred to it yeah. as the New World Order. Yeah, which was, book. I, yeah I'm very familiar. He was, uh, he was a... A prophet of doom. Yeah, but yeah. He was an evolutionist, though, definitely. Oh, yeah. Ab- Is he the one that uh, wrote Brave New World? Oh, no, no. Um, that was uh, Aldous Huxley, who, interestingly enough, some, have, uh, yeah. some say was uh, H.G. Was, uh, Wells' uh, protege. But uh, Brave New World... Um, Brave New World is basically uh, uh, the, the, a fictionalized account uh, on, uh, on uh, what sort of society... Uh, these uh, sort of uh, people uh, have endeavored to create, which um, uh, Aldous Huxley refers to in his book *Brave New World Revisited* as the, yeah. as a scientific dictatorship. And again, that that yeah. that term is interchangeable with uh, technocracy, because for all practical purposes, a technocratic form of governance is where we see uh, the uh, imposition of science. Upon uh, all questions of uh, governance, on uh, questions of political science, and as a result, what is jettisoned? <laughs> Liberty, democracy, are not quantifiably or empirically demonstrable. But um, let's uh, you know, let's now now now. Of course, we started uh, uh, looking at the the uh, origins of the concept of a uh, technocratic form of governance of a technocracy. With Sir Francis Bacon, um, tracing its its uh, development along a little further, um, we come to an individual known as uh, Henri de Saint Simon. Um, Henri de Saint Simon 
uh, whose uh, theories were considered uh, uh, by uh, uh, Frank Fisher, who wrote the book Technocracy, the Politics of Expertise, as the prescription for uh, Bacon's work. Uh, St. Simon uh, was a radical empiricist. And again, radical empiricism is the epistemological position that all knowledge is derived from the senses. And contemporary science, which one could argue functions as a cosmological myth, is premised upon radical empiricism. And while radical empiricism is commonly presented as the rational alternative to the supposed superstition of mystical faith, it's no less mystical in character. This is demonstrable in radical empiricism's rejection of causality because what's ca- what's perceived as a causing b you know uh you 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 throw the ball the ball bounces off the wall um could merely be according to radical empiricism a consequence of circumstantial juxtaposition while we have what's known as temporal succession that is two phenomena following each other um and uh, spatial proximity uh, which uh, we have uh, two objects uh, within the same area. Uh, while those are, are self-evident, those are axiomatic, causal connection, according to uh, radical empiricism, is not uh, axiomatic. An affirmation of causal relationships is impossible, and in the uh, absence of causality, all of a scientist's findings must be taken upon faith. And ironically, science relies on the affirmation of cause and effect relationships. And it was none other than an Enlightenment rationalist, David Hume, that demonstrated this uh, rejection of causality with uh, radical empiricism. But at any rate, St. Simon extended radical empiricism, extended that epistemology into the emergent field of social relations. Um, During the Reign of Terror, uh, St. Simon was imprisoned for 11 months and was constantly in fear for his life. And this experience uh, instilled a deep fear of revolution in St. Simon. And to mitigate the violent climaxes that often accompanied uh, revolutions, St. Simon endeavored to develop a science of human relations. And working under the epistemological assumptions of radical empiricism, St. Simon contended that the diagnosis and uh, healing of societal ills laid in the uh, apprehension of the alleged physiological realities that underpinned all thinking and feeling. For all practical purposes, thinking and feeling, he believed, had biochemical origins. There there was no pneuma. There was no pneumaticos, no spirit. They, they, They were purely... Uh, uh, biological, purely physiological in origin. And uh, he extended that uh, principle to the overall social body, to uh, society itself. And this physiological interpretation of society presaged uh, the enshrinement of uh, physiology in the halls of modern social science. And a logical outgrowth of this physiological interpretation was a uh, myriad of institutionalized aberrations such as uh, lobotomies, pharmacological manipulation, electroshock uh, treatment. Um, all that all that comes from the extension of radical empiricism to the whole of uh, the social body. And but at any rate, in uh, Saint Simon's essay on uh, the science of man in uh, eighteen eighteen thirteen, Saint Simon contended that physiology had moved beyond 
a moved uh, beyond a conjectural uh, phase into a positive phase and was thus poised for a speculative extrapolation into the field of governance, into government relations itself. And he believed that the scientific method should be applied to both the individual body and the body politic. And following that belief to its logical uh, conclusion, St. Simon analyzed society according to its physiological components, which were classes. Now, does that sound familiar? This, this, yeah. this sort of functional class analysis was the stuff that Marxism was made of. <laughs> Marxist uh, theory. Very theophis- theosophy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> very the- theosophy of uh, Blavatsky, where probably she got most of her ideas from, didn't Yeah, she? yeah. And there... Th- and- Paul and I also discuss her. She, she, uh, uh, at, at length though. She, uh, she, uh, uh, of course, was uh, one of the uh, one of the leading progenitors of uh, of uh, mystical imperialism, as it was adopted by uh, the Russian imperialist, which, uh, of course, uh, uh, of course, are one of the one of the many factions that had been engaged in this this uh, crusade to. Uh, you know, create a, a, a world utopia. But what role did uh, Madame Blavatsky uh, play in all of this? Well, she 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 had a she had a, there was an evolutionary framework to her belief system. Uh, she believed that 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 you know uh, man was uh, uh, following this uh, uh, upward trajectory of development. And uh, that uh, he had come from seven root races, of course, the uh, the uh, uh, the dominant uh, race, the the uh, absolute uh, pinnacle of of that uh, developmental framework, being the Aryan, <laughs> which of course sounds, uh, you know, Persian. yeah, <laughs> and of course, uh, it, it, you know, the, the uh, anybody who's uh, studied, you know, uh, Hitlerian fascism, that 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 very term will, you know, raise the hairs on the back of their neck. It's just ridiculous because of. If you really look down to it, what they believed, you know, and Hitler with all their, you know, all their, you know, ideas, especially in Mein Kampf, and the things actually, which I don't, I think he had a ghostwriter, you know, that added some stuff because I didn't think Hitler really was that smart, but uh, he was possessed, I bet, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. But how he says that the Aryans, it's just kind of funny because they're blonde hair and blue eyes or whatever. Uh, thing that he had, but when you look at you know, Arians, you think of King Cirrus, right? Uh-huh. And you think of, you know, the, this, this, you know, the country that was named, you know, by Hitler, you know, and so it used to be Persia, and now they call it uh, Iran, you know, which is, it's just, it's kind of funny how that, how, how does that mix with the Germans? There, there, there's no, you know, there's no real bloodline that, you know, Hitler could ever or those that surrounded them, it's kind of like they were way off by something. You know what I mean? They were like, it was, you could tell it was very highly imaginative. Oh, yeah. You know? It was like so, it was like, it, it was like pretend that the Persians are these blonde-haired, blue-eyed guys, and they have this, this they're super race. That's kind of what I look at. I look at that like, you know, that's, it's like, something, you know, it's from his childhood. It's, it's, it's you know, something in Hitler that, that came out and like it was this huge pretend you know what I mean uh-huh. it was just, it, 
sure. And you know, uh, Nazi idealism, it really uh, sprang from uh, the uh, ideas of the Thule Society. Uh, the Nazi Party, uh, the Third Reich, was as much of a... Uh, of a religion and a and a uh, ancient mystic cult as it was a uh, as it was a government as it was a regime a dictatorship right right yeah, yeah. it was all based on what what would say a lie and of course breaking the second commandment on top of that you know creating right. an image with hands and with their imagination and look at look at the it kind of really makes me look at the second command. You know, the, the first four commandments actually, like, really, like, you know, look at how deep it really goes. I mean, God gave you these simple things, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul. Don't, you know, create a graven image, you know, make any idols or anything, you know. Uh, keep my Sabbath day and keep them holy, you know. And you just, you kind of look at this whole thing. Look at how deep it really got, Right. You know? And right. here God's given us this, right? And he gave it to us as, as, so simply, right? Right. And look at how deep it got. Right. I mean, look at how deep we're talking. The whole conversation that we are having. I mean, to have you you study having to study all that philosophy, you know, and get really deep into these roots of uh, these, uh, I guess, you know, elitist mindset and their 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 names, you know, technocracy and and all these things. Just look at how deep that has really gotten. Right. You know? One of my big questions to you, Phil, uh, was going to be, uh, do we have a, a precedent in the past, uh, an example of a uh, technocratic society that had already been uh, formed? Uh, is there a past technocratic society like oh say the the nazi regime okay there were there were strands there were strands of technocratic thinking uh that uh, throughout uh, uh throughout uh nazism um, um now the the important thing to understand is that that we've never seen a pure technocracy uh we, we've never seen a, a pure technocracy instantiated because uh technocracy the, the technocratic paradigm while it informed these various schools of socio-political utopian thinking, uh, the, the, those, those, <laughs> those various uh, uh, schools of socio-political utopianism were very selective in terms of what they uh, lifted from technocratic theory uh, for implementation in their own policies and what they, they discarded. Um, because uh, according, according to uh, early technocratic the theoreticians such as St. Simon, uh, a technocracy, a pure technocracy, see, it's supposed to be apolitical. It's supposed to completely and totally remove special interest and lobbyists and what have you uh, and supplant them entirely with uh, policy professionals. And uh, uh, So the government would actually function on autopilot, uh, sort of uh, uh, machine-driven. Right, exactly. Well, that's exactly what they viewed uh, uh, the government as. They They believed that that uh, that government should ju just be a, a an efficient, and that's an uh, that's an adjective that uh, uh, technocrats invoke uh, ad nauseum. Efficiency. They they have this overwhelming preoccupation with efficiency, and, and much like corporate America these days. Yeah, yeah. There's a great deal of technocratic uh, uh, technocratic thought that that you know runs throughout uh, corporate America, but. Um, it ruined capitalism. I'm telling you that. Yeah, no, you're absolutely correct there. 
I mean, capitalism in itself is great, but look at look what has invaded, you know, look what has invaded it. It's exactly this that you're talking about, apolitical, uh, even to the point of asexual society. You know what I mean? There is this, there is, a, you know, this this movement. You see this with uh, cultural feminism, which arguably yeah. is, is a form of uh, of Gnosticism towards uh, a culture of androgyny, which is completely and totally ridiculous. I mean, yeah. th- there's no way that you're going to ever expunge the intrinsic uh, differences between man and woman. There, there, yeah. you know, but that's that's nonetheless what that's nonetheless what they seek to do, which of course. It is very very scary when one considers the fact that androgyny is a hallmark of uh, ant colonies and 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 you know insect societies. And you look at uh, the uh, you look at uh, several uh, esoteric uh, secret societies such as uh, the Bavarian Illuminati, which was uh, a, a prominent uh, secret society of the Enlightenment. Adam Weishaupt. Yeah, as Adam Weishaupt. And the skeptics will tell you that was all disbanded, but we uh, we know from history that uh, you can't kill an idea. I'm... No, no, exactly. It was the and, and that's largely what uh, Weishaupt had contributed to was the diffusion of an idea, or in the words of Dostoevsky, uh, a fire in the minds of men. But if you look at uh, one of the uh, one of the uh, uh, the titles of the Bavarian Illuminati, the Order of the Bees. So you see this fascination with uh, insect, uh, the with the uh, in, uh, with insects and with the insect model of society, which uh, is of course like one. Like the plague of the locust. Yeah, with, the yeah. But a beehive doesn't uh, seem to uh, uh, facilitate a hierarchy of uh, power-hungry people that want to control. I mean, that's not... Well, in a beehive, you have the queen, and then you simply have the drones. So is that what these people uh, envision, to be drones themselves? Yeah, yeah, for all practical purposes. Now, we uh, actually saw uh, the beginnings of a uh, technocratic society in America uh, uh, right there around the uh, the FDR era. You're absolutely correct, yeah. You're right on target. You're right on target. In fact, uh, the, the, uh, the uh, technocratic movement which was a phenomenon at the time. Um, um, many of its adherents uh, uh, believed that uh, FDR uh, should be uh, basically be uh, made the uh, absolute dictator. And uh, many tech- technocrats uh, believed that uh, the, uh, believed that um, the uh, New Deal would be, for all practical purposes, technocracy. That, that's progressivism, what we call it here. It, 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 progressivism a- actually was, was the precursor to, uh, to the technocrats. It was one so of the, I thought, or is the technocrat the secret and the progressivism is the show? <laughs> there was this little book written uh, somewhere around uh, 1932, and uh, it was a short book. It was only like 75, 80 pages long, and it really uh, laid out the whole idea of the tech- technocratic society. It was uh, kind of – I believe the book you're thinking of is uh, 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 by uh, Henry Porter, and, and in that book, uh, Porter basically says um, – uh, he says, "Will will the uh, will the New Deal be a technocracy?" And <laughs> poses that there's question. A, there's another one, like the coming insurrection, or or the coming. Uh, it's like a real small, like fire type uh-huh. booklet. There's a one at Glenn Beck. If you see, if you watch Glenn Beck, 
he's always telling everybody this is what they want to do to America. They're, they've already done it in Europe, and and these are technocrats. You're saying you're saying this exactly. It's pretty like wow. I'm hearing like a. Uh, yeah, but anyway, keep going. Yeah, but Rick, this book I'm talking about, uh, it, it wanted to uh, install uh, FDR as supreme ruler. It uh, laid out the modern uh, framework of the modern technocracy and uh, wanted to make uh, wanted to make FDR uh, the overlord of Earth. I, I, I believe the book. Yeah, I I, I think uh, the book you're referring to is the was written by uh, Henry Porter. The uh, the title escapes me, but that that's that sounds exactly like what he wrote. Um, was that the uh, first time that we were uh, actually uh, exposed? Uh, the world was exposed to a uh, technocratic society, to uh, real technocratic thought. Well, well, to to a certain extent. See, here here's here, here's the thing: technocracy again, technocracy in its purest form, has never been you know never witnessed instantiation. What what you have though is several is se- are several. Uh, uh, political theories that selectively lifted from uh, technocratic theory and were instantiated. For instance, uh, for instance, Marxism, uh, which was disseminated on the popular level as uh, communism. The the Marxist uh, concept of a uh, planned economy that, for all practical purposes, is uh, lifted from uh, the technocratic theory of uh, centralized uh, bureaucratic decision making. Um, you also, uh, uh, and again, uh, Andre de Saint Simon, who I was discussing earlier, um, um, his functional class analyses presaged uh, Marx's own class analyses, and and that that and of course Andre de Saint Simon was uh, considered the 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 uh, considered the earliest uh, one of the earliest theoreticians of 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 uh, the technocratic theory, uh, of the technocratic paradigm, at least of the earliest person to systematize uh, and uh, systematize and compile the uh, ideas that constituted uh, technocratic govern- uh, governance. And what you had with FDR is uh, a, a good many of FDR's brain trust were uh, were uh, uh, ad- admirers of uh, uh, Benito Mussolini and Bo- Benito Mussolini's uh, corporatism. So that stems back to Woodrow Wilson, who was actually the first technocrat, wasn't he? Well, he was. Woodrow Wilson was a, was a progressive. Was a, yeah. And, and see, progressivism was a precursor of of the techno of the technocratic movement here in the United States. Uh, one of the the uh, early progressives was none other than uh, Edward Bellamy, who was also a Fabian socialist and a Freemason, and he wrote a book called Looking Backward. And that this scientific novel uh, basically presented a character who uh, travels through time and uh, uh, finds himself, he awakens in a purely technocratic society uh, where uh, all the, uh, uh, basically all the, uh, every facet of uh, the individual's life is uh, managed and directed um, there is there is no more hunger, there is no more poverty. So you find yeah. all the elements of traditional socio-political utopianism in there. But of course, you will have this uh, this uh, pervasive strain of uh, anti-democratic uh, thought. And uh, his book, uh, Looking Backward, was uh, recommended reading for all technocrats, all members of the technocratic movement. Okay, and, so like I'm asking, like. Because I'm stemming this to like the first like we 
figured it out as you know as I've been listening and understanding. Was this the first? Because you know Teddy Roosevelt, he of all the other presidents, he was the one guy who started introducing this. Do you think he's influenced by that guy, or, or is he? Is this guy after? You know the technocrat. Is he after you know, created that book? Because it stems from that. Because Teddy was like one of the first ones who got power finally in America, and he started. He was like a progress. He was definitely a progressive. If you listen to his uh, presidential, his first presidential speech, right? Mm-hmm. I can't think of the name of it. It's it's just on the tip of my tongue. But you're saying all this stuff that I've been reading, and it's it's like so parallels with everything. So am mm-hmm. I am I am I am I on the right track? You're you're on the right track. What you're probably identifying are elements of of technocratic theory in his thinking, and there were elements okay. there were elements of technocratic thinking uh, in the, uh, evident in the New Deal. Um, uh, one one technocrat uh, by the name of uh, Townsend, uh, he uh, he had uh, proposed this uh, system of uh, of uh, public assistance, public financial assistance, where people would be given. Uh, so much money uh, upon which to uh, live every month, and uh, uh, would uh, uh, basically uh, be provided with uh, uh, government housing, what have you. And his his system, while it never really witnessed uh, instantiation, it acted as the precursor to the Social Security Act. <laughs> and and they started doing it in Europe too, though. So yeah, it's exactly, failing. exactly. And and so uh, uh, also with uh, with uh, uh, the cartelization of industry under FDR, um, um, you have again the uh, 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 technocratic paradigm's preoccupation with uh, bu- centralized bureaucratic decision making, uh, which which of course became a hallmark of corporatism, uh, uh, which uh, was uh, a form of governance that uh, Benito Mussolini had already. Uh, uh, enshrined, and of course, corporatism, according to Benito Mussolini, was uh, simply another appellation for fascism, and everything. So that that tells you from whence uh, the theoreticians of uh, FDR's presidency, of his administration, from whence they were uh, gathering their ideas. the The point is, is is that uh, is that all of these uh, forms of socio political utopianism. You know, irrespective of what appellations uh, they've been uh, instantiated under, have lifted from the from the technocratic paradigm. And uh, Sorry, it, gets, it gets even more deeper because as soon as I start understanding progressivism, right, uh-huh. and you, and you throw this other curveball at me, you know, technocratic. I'm like, man, it even goes deeper. You know, <laughs> I mean, how deep does it go? I mean, I'm just like. I believe in that saying, it's getting thicker, you know, and yeah. I'm like going, okay, I'm just learning about progressivism and, and, and understanding, yes, Marxism, okay? Right. But when you're coming, it's like, and learning, and hearing your conversations, I've been all week, because I was, you know, climbing with you on the mountain on PID Radio, as I say. Uh-huh. Uh, thank you, PID Radio, it was wonderful. And I was like going, so... That's the question. It's more deeper than you're saying. It's just an element. I'm like... I'm like beside myself right now because it's just like, what, how are we going to get, you know, how are we going to attack this enemy, you know? How are we going to defeat them, you know? And we know that God is sovereign and he's definitely in control and he's planned everything out. We know this. But we just think about it like, wow, you know? This sure. is what's happening in America right now. These Americans don't 
I mean, they're really asleep, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is like what our, our forefathers warned us about, these things. And look at how bad they've gotten because we've been asleep. I stand with, you know, Christ. Right. But I am, everybody says, well, what is your political party? I say godly and moral. I am, you know, I am not, I like the NRA. I believe in, you know, I definitely, NRA, I believe in the Constitution. I stand with it. I know it's a living document. It's 17 pages long, right? It right. explains itself. It, it is. There's nothing wrong with it. There, there's nothing, you know, it's not outdated. It, it, is, it, it will last another 200 years and another 200 years. But now all these technocrats, now that I will call them, because I no longer will call anybody progressivism anymore, you know? Mm-hmm. You've, you've compo- made me realize that it's not, that's just, progressivism is, is an element. Marxism is an element. I, I'm going, wait a minute. I, I just, you know, all this, now you're telling me it's all, they're all elements of te- technocracy, right? To, uh, they they all lift you know from technocratic theory, so they they all have elements of technocracy in them. So and, that's the tree, right? So what is the tree of that whole thought? Well, it's technocracy, right? It, it, yeah, and 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 if you want to if you want to find the spiritual root of it, the again, you know, technocracy found its proximate origins one of the earliest, the very earliest promoters of a technocratic form of governance was Sir Francis Bacon, who, of course, was a student of Gnosticism. And so was there, Nimrod, too? Didn't he do the same thing? Uh, to, yeah, to a certain extent. Uh, Nim, yeah. Nimrod was, was definitely an, uh, you know, an autocrat. And it was, <laughs> but but, but, but Nimrod, Nimrod believed, uh, uh, it, you know, adhered to an anthropocentric soteriology, believed that salvation emanated from within him. He, he was a rebellion, he was a rebel against God, and he rejected God as the source of his salvation. And there is where we have the spiritual root of it all, this anthropocentric soteriology, which later on became known as Gnosticism, uh, and its inverted hermeneutic where Jehovah becomes uh, the, the evil archon of arrogance, and uh, the, the, the serpent in Eden was uh, an incognito savior attempting to liberate man, which you know, for all practical purposes, that's 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 Luciferianism. That that's the root of uh, the spiritual root of all of this. It, it, it all it, it, what what we see with 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 uh, with evolutionary theory, what we see with uh, <coughs> materialism, scientism, radical empiricism, uh, deism, are these attempts, these uh, uh, theoretical attempts to ontologically divorce man entirely from God. Which was what Gnosticism held—that that the pneuma of man was separate from the divine pneuma, perpetually separate, and thereby excused from all moral compunction and had to seek his own salvation. Therein lies the real. The, therein lies the real. Uh, uh, the real root of it all, and it can all be synopsized with one single, one single uh, adage, one single aphorism which was uttered in the Garden of Eden so long ago, and that is, ye shall be as God. God. And it also, it goes on, that's why the story of Cain and Abel are told, you know, mm-hmm. where, you know, Cain, Cain, means, Cain means ownership, right? Right. That's what his name means. Mm-hmm. And he names this, the first city, of all things, after his son Enoch, Enoch, or it's actually Enoch with an H, which means dedication, right? Right. I just, this is like, 
so wild that I'm learning this right now, so I'm, I'm excited about it because I've just sure. been reading this. I'm really trying to trace the names, you know, right. and their names and why their names mean so because they have a meaning to this. This is what Augustine has been pointing, showing me. Is uh, and actually, Irenaeus has done it. This is who he's getting it from. So that's why I got to read against heresies. You're saying exactly this: the numia, where Cain wanted to do it on his own by, you know, tilling the garden and offering up a sacrifice that he, you know, oh, this will be good. This is for my salvation. I'll do my sacrifice myself. Where Abel was faithful and did it exactly right. You know, right? Exactly. I want to stop and interrupt you guys right here because I just thought of something that. Uh, that Phil said a while ago uh, on another show that just blew me away. He said that uh, that when Judas uh, dipped his bread in the bowl, Jesus said, uh, he that dips his bread in the bowl, he will be the one who betrays me. He will be the he one, be who, the betrays one who betrays me. He will be the he one, be who, the betrays one who betrays me. And uh, Phil was saying that there's a huge amount of uh, 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 theology packed into that verse. He thought that uh, the bread was a was a was an example was a symbolic of the pure corpus of Christ, and uh, dipping that bread in the bowl is adding something to that bread. It's Jesus plus this, Jesus plus that, uh, and that is kind of uh, basically our modern problem. Uh, we've been doing that uh, ever since. Uh, Judas uh, dipped his bread in the bowl. Right. You're, no, you're absolutely right. Because what had Jesus been? Uh, uh, up to that point, using bread as a symbol of. He had been using the bread as a symbol of his body. He said, you know, he said to his, uh, his to his disciples, he said, whoever I dip the bre- bread into the sauce, whomever I give that to, that, that will be the one who betrays me. And so we take this symbol, which represents the, por- the pure corpus of, of, of Christianity, the, the, the pure body of Christ, and something extraneous is added to it, and that is the person who uh, who betrays uh, Jesus. And I found that very interesting. And if you look, you you know, you look at at these uh, at sociopolitical utopianism, which basically is just a collection of social uh, 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 so, soteriological social movements. They've taken the 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 the, the notion of salvation, which all men need all men uh, all men, uh, men require and they have uh basically uh they have added something extraneous to it they've superimposed their own private interpretations upon it and it's no longer theocentric it's anthropocentric here we go kane well phil i think the point you make is uh absolutely profound it just blew me away truth be told and this was something that the lord had been pointing out to me uh, when I was, you know, when I was sitting and reading the scriptures, uh, th- nothing that nothing that I that I discern, discern in the scriptures is discerned of my own, you know, of my own, you know, cognitive powers. Truth be told, it's when I'm there and I'm prayerfully and honestly reading the scriptures the, that the Lord will will you know will point something out to me, and that that was one of the things that I took note of. And what's interesting, some people, some theologians have postulated that. One of the reasons that Judas had betrayed uh, Jesus was that Judas uh, had uh, some uh, proclivities towards zealotry, which, of course, the zealots hoped to uh, see the Messiah overthrow Rome. And so we have this completely politicized uh, soteriology, this, this belief in a political salvation. 
And isn't that exactly what we see with, for instance, the the evangelical uh, Christian right today, the dom- uh, the the, the uh, dominionist, uh, the the school of dominionism, which of course was closely aligned with neoconservatism and uh, pervaded uh, the uh, administration of George W. Bush. Could you unpack uh, dominionism uh, really quick so that we're all on the same page and uh, our listeners know what we're talking about? Sure, sure. Okay, well. Basically, dominionism, uh, uh, dominionism in a nutshell, according to their eschatology, Jesus cannot or will not return to earth until the dominionist, until Christians co-opt all secular, po- political, and social institutions. And thus, Jesus' kingdom is reduced to a secular government established by and maintained through secular power. Now, while secular progressives cite dominionism as a violation of the separation of church and state, it actually represents the subsumption of the church under the state. Dominionism empowers temporal machinations, uh, social, political, and military powers attain ascendancy under the rubric of maintaining the, the, the dominionist government. And ultimately, the state is apotheosized. And again, this was an objective of earlier sociopolitical utopians. And that this particular strain, dominionism, that the, uh, this particular strain of utopianism has a marginally theistic gloss. It, it acknowledges the existence of God. That's totally inconsequential. Dominionism still represents but one more permutation of sociopolitical utopianism, and this contention is reinforced by dominion, uh, dominionism's inherently uh, neo-Gnostic character. The, the neo-Gnostic character of dominionism is underscored by its mandate to build the kingdom of God in the here and now. This mandate reconceptualized, reconceptualizes the eschaton, that is to say, the end of days, as an object of emanate experience. And again, objects of, of emanate experience are completely and totally confined to the ontological plane of the physical universe or within the experiential, uh, the experiential uh, limitations, the experiential limits of man. And so you don't require faith, pistis. You don't require it to apprehend its existence. So we have this gradual migration back towards the cognitive powers of man, back towards gnosis, away from faith, a deri- this, this derision for faith, which of course was a hallmark of sociopolitical utopians such as communists and fascists. Thus, the dominionist uh, eschaton purely indwells the, the material cosmos, and this, this uh, uh, is all... Uh, this all is a slippery slope towards an anthropocentric soteriology because according to dominionist theology, Jesus is either unwilling or unable to return to earth. And if this is true, then Christ's role of of Savior as sotir is nullified. After all, the scripture states, it's in Hebrews uh, 9, uh, yeah, chapter 9, verse 28, it states that Christ's return will represent the final installment in humanity's salvation. It reads, quote, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. According to Dominionism, man, not God, 
shall make his kingdom come. Hey, Phil, do these uh, Christian dominionists, uh, do they classify uh, themselves as dominionist? The, the dominionists would find the term dominionism derisive. And, and of course, uh, the social sciences, which basically were technocratic in origin, uh, because they find their proximate origins with Auguste Comte, who was the chief uh, disciple of Henri de Saint-Simon, of course would find any derision for, you know, seeks to find any reason to, to, to deride uh, uh, traditional theistic faiths such as Christianity. That being said, um, uh, the, the, the problem... The problem emerges for for the dominionists. The problem emerges when they begin to they begin to see uh, the parousia, that is the second coming. Coming, they believe they begin to see it as an event that is instigated by the hands of man. That there are certain prerequisites in terms of human activity that are required for uh, the facilitation of the parousia. And that leads to all sorts of, of problems. That's a slippery slope to all sorts of, of troubles because all of a sudden uh, one one is led to believe that well perhaps if we blow up the temple, <laughs> you know, or you know that that you know perhaps if we rebuild the temple and and, and uh, you know uh, such as the, the the temple mount faithful, um, um, we can we can prompt Jesus to return, and this leads to all sorts of violent uh, radicalism, violent political activism. Oh, yeah. It's like uh, Eric Prince, you know, uh, kill all the Muslims. That's his philosophy. It was the Crusades. It was all those things. Yeah. Right, right. And it, it hasn't stopped. Yeah. You know? and, 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 and it's like it's like pastors like John Hagee who believes that a war between the Arab world and the Christian world is one of the necessary precursors to the Perusia. The, 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 so they, he basically urges his congregation to support the presidency of George W. Bush, which was, uh, you know, which was infested with neoconservatives, which ironically enough hail from the Enlightenment school, which was virulently anti-Christian. Um, um, but but that 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 of course has led to the quagmires that we have in Afghanistan. In Iraq, and let me ask you a question: Now that we're now that we have so many troops abroad, and we've killed so many Iraqis, we've had uh, uh, the uh, uh, you know Blackwater or Z uh, mercenaries uh, gunning down Iraqi civilians, uh, and and we've carpet bombed uh, Afghan civilians. Uh, ha- it, does it appear as though Jesus is any closer to returning? Has he returned yet? Absolutely not. Yeah, and the problem is, is because because this belief, this belief that some human activity, some sort of that 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 certain historical events are absolute precursors to the Perusia. That that the, the problem is, is that that all that does is that that sets the stage that provides a religious rationale for va- violent political re- you know activism that uh, just begets a perpetual cycle of violence which will never force the hand of God that's not so if we follow that line of reasoning uh, you might say that the uh, Christian dominionist is his own worst enemy yes he is very much so and and what have we seen since since you know the the presidency of, of George W Bush which uh, found a great deal of of uh, 
support from the dominionists uh the the dominionist com- community from the evangelicals we saw this backlash and this was something that i had been predicting myself i predicted it on several uh talk shows we saw this backlash uh, from the secular progressives and now the new atheists such as uh Dawkins and Dennett and uh Hitchens these these people have all the intellectual ammunition they need to fire back at at the christian to to make it appear as though uh, christianity is in fact a poison a venom that a virus of the mind that that once it infects those who uh adopt it they become radical violent fanatical jihadist and to a certain extent, the, the, the new atheist is not wrong, and that's, that's the sad part. They're not wrong in that the dominionist is a jihadist. They are, they yeah. are promoting jihad. The problem it comes is, in why there's the wheat and the tares yeah. in the church. That's why Jesus is directing the church more than he's directing, you know, we already know the, you know, the other world, they're, it's already, they're already dead people right? because they're, they're dead in their beliefs. And here they can fire back to even more, be further from, you know, being regenerated, mm-hmm. you know, to actually see the truth. Now we got Christian dominionists doing the same thing as the Crusades, you know. Exactly. And, You're exactly and, right. It's just, during the Great Awakening, we were woken, and during Luther, we were woken from this. We're like, wait a minute, you know, and Calvin wrote the Institutes to show us, wait, let's never go back to this thinking. This is not... You know, we don't want to go back to this. I can't help but thinking that there's uh, somebody way up high uh, playing both sides against the middle, sort of a Hegelian dialectic, including uh, dominionism. Well, you're, you're absolutely right, because for all practical purposes, if you look at the culture war between uh, secular progressives and uh, evangelicals, that's a Hegelian dialectic. Because uh, for all practical purposes, you have two adherents of uh, an anthropocentric soteriology. The dominionist, quite unconsciously an an adherent of of an anthropocentric soteriology, but an an adherent nonetheless. That's the natural uh, uh, logical conclusion of uh, dominionist theology, that man is facilitating his own salvation by instigating the parousia. Likewise, the secular progressive who... Uh, who may or may not believe in God, and if they do believe in God, God is reduced to an absentee landlord uh, uh, at best, um, believes, uh, subscribes to an anthropocentric soteriology, that man is the measure of all things, to paraphrase Pro- Protagoras. Many of them are secular humanists, and, they, and, and, and therefore man must uh, basically facilitate his own salvation. And so these dialectical commonalities... Uh, basically make it inconsequential that the conflict between uh, uh, the uh, evangelicals and the secular progressives is superficial at best, and the outcome, uh, uh, who wins, is inconsequential. In fact, we might be seeing a Hegelian synthesis between the two, because we see uh, uh, men like Rick Warren, who who is now uh, closely aligned with uh, secular progressives, Uh, men like... uh, uh, Barack Obama uh, and the emerging church movement, which uh, Rick Warren is really a part of. Uh, we might even say he was the founder of the emerging church. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's like it's also with uh, who who was starting it was Norman Vincent Peale and you know uh, uh, Robert Schuller. That that sort of dominionist progressive 
thinking. And some even say Pat Robertson, too. Would you agree? You know, with Schuler, the sad thing with Schuler is is that that I, I believe that the man he he honestly he honestly believed that what he was espousing was genuine Christianity. But if you notice with yeah. Schuler, there was this preoccupation with politics, an overwhelming preoccupation with politics, and D. James Kennedy, for that matter, right. uh, he became more and more of a political orator. Right, right, and if I'm not mistaken. Uh, he was also a participant in the uh, Council for National Policy, or the CMP. Which, oh boy, here we yeah, go. Yeah, for, for all practical purposes, uh, Mark a., uh, Mark Ambender has characterized him as a conservative uh, answer to the Council on Foreign Relations, the CFR, which I mentioned earlier. Now, many members of the CMP deplore uh, globalism. They're anti-globalist. However, what do they posit as a... Uh, viable alternative to uh, world government to to yeah they're both on the same trajectory right they they, they posit a, a, a an, an American empire as the only viable alternative well for all practical purposes that's just a unilateral form of, of world order uh, the, the, so all they oppose is a multilateral form of world order but because it's it's it, because they accept uh, a, a you know a concept of global government under a different appellation for some reason, that makes it all the more legitimate to them. That that some that somehow in their minds makes uh, you know makes it uh, uh, diametrically opposed to what's being proposed by the by the uh, globalists. In either case, though, you have uh, nation states being undermined and subordinated to a supranational authority. Good evening, my fellow Americans. We face a hostile ideology, global in scope, atheistic in character, ruthless in purpose, and insidious in method. The ascendancy of the scientific dictatorship. Available now at Amazon.com. The 2006 Book Surge Edition is available in an expanded and revised form, which includes some of their predictions that are now coming to pass, such as the demographic winter, the population implosion, and the fall of the European Union. Articles by the Collins Brothers, available at www.conspiracyarchive.com. Click on the articles link, then look for contributing authors, then look for Paul and Philip Collins. Collins Brothers on Audio. Click the blog link at www.conspiracyarchive.com. You will see a comprehensive list of archived audio interviews with Paul and Philip Collins. Also check out the podcast, The Collins Brothers Unleashed, at Podomatic.com. Go to Podomatic.com and enter the Collins Brothers Unleashed in the search box. Thank you. So, but that's that's the that's the trap of dialectical logic, um, because people can't identify the dialectical commonalities of their own belief systems and can't I- identify the you know the identical outcomes they believe themselves to be truly dichotomously related to those they oppose when in fact they're not diametrically opposed they're, they're in fact they will eventually migrate towards a synthesis and like you said we we might be 
witnessing such a synthesis with, for instance, the emergent church movement, what have you, Rick Warren, and everything. And, then, and that's the sad part. The culture war, I believe, for all practical purposes, has been lost because neither side is dichotomously related. Neither side is 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 really proffering anything different. Uh, both both sides are, are equally anti-democratic, equally uh, uh, you know, e- uh, equally uh, uh, anthropocentric in their outlook, and uh, so uh, we have, uh, we really have uh, just a, a, a feud, a superficial feud between ideological kissing cousins, whether or not they care to admit it, whether or not Oberman—they're blind to the dialectic. Yeah, whether or not whether or not Oberman. Uh, or Bill or, O'Reilly. <laughs> or Bill, yeah, or Bill O'Reilly want to admit it. You know, the the two of the talking heads of the punditocracy want, wish to to you know want to to admit it. Their dialectical commonalities makes the conflict between the two entirely superficial. Yeah, I live for these aha moments in the Iron Show. I I live for these aha moments where my eyes are open and I see something that I haven't seen before. And, uh, Phil, listening to you, I really see this Hegelian dialectic being played out. Uh, on one side, we have the Christian dominionists. And, uh, on the other side, we have the secular atheists. And, but what the funny thing is, is what I see is, is that they're both on the same exact trajectory. And uh, that just amazes me. And isn't it strange, you know, how an ex-punk rocker and an old longshoreman uh, are seeing things that uh, that these uh, sophisticated intellectuals uh, are blind to? And would you say, Phil, it's because simply because the three of us are not dipping Jesus in the sauce? <laughs> I, I, I'd, I'd certainly like to think so and everything. You know, again, it, it's really... It, you know anything that 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 anything that you know i i discern it's only because the lord's shown me it and everything and it's taken me totally yeah it's it, it's it's only because you know i sometimes i feel sorry for for the lord because i i realize that he's dealing with a very a very stubborn pupil with me i mean i'm not an easy person to to teach i'm uh, I'm, I'm not a very lovable person, but you know I'm thankful that he that he you know has that he has patiently worked you know with me over these years and has opened my eyes to you know to to, to several truths and and has shown me truths in the scriptures and everything. As as it is, you know I'm sure that you can relate and everything. The Lord, uh, uh, you know, it, revelation is is uh, sometimes is this gradual uh, this uh, this gradual process of disambiguation, and it takes a while and everything, but eventually, you know, the Lord opens your eyes to certain truths and everything. And I'm finding more and more, um, the more and more I study this, the more and more I'm driven back to my Bible. Not because, not because I'm attempting to uh, superimpose biblical uh, eschatology and, and Bible prophecy upon the events of today, because while I believe that that you know that 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 there is prophetic significance to the events of today i i don't i don't i don't i don't want to fall into the uh premillennialist uh trap of of 
uh, qualifying certain historical events as necessary precursors to Jesus's second coming. And speaking of that, speaking of that, uh, this whole time listening to you and listening to your podcasts and uh, you on other shows regarding the technocracy, uh, the technocratic society, um, I see all over this the number of the beast, the beast system. Uh, do you agree or am I way off base there? You know, I mean, I'm 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 a little I'm a little hesitant to to touch on that. Let's just put it this way: um, um, with with the system of the beast and the system where where man is is only able to to buy and sell if he bears the mark of the beast, whatever form that assumes, it, what however that manifests in human history, and I'm not I'm not going to. I'm not going to speculate because you know uh, that that's uh, I'm not I'm not into the 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 habit of of making predictions because I don't like to get in the habit of being wrong. But yeah, I know speculation's dangerous, but uh, it sure seems like this whole conversation and the whole idea of a technocratic society is just pointing like mad to the number of the beast and the beast system six 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 buy or sell without the mark can't buy or sell without the mark say that again one more time philip say it said oh uh, i i don't make predictions because i don't like to get in the habit of being wrong yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. See, see, Donnie, you see where it's uh i love you because i've been saying that to johnny all the time about really where i stand well no guts no glory is what i'd say to you rick but uh i'm certainly not addressing phil but uh but Phil um don't you think that this whole technocracy uh really does uh point to a beast system i mean that's all based on technology right yeah let let's just let's just put it this way whether or not it will whether or not um the the techno pro, uh, the technocratic proclivities of of uh of uh, the current uh, societal configurations uh that we we currently have witnessed emerging throughout uh you know, in this uh, current period of human history, whether or not uh, that ultimately leads, ultimately leads to the system of the beast, uh, one thing we can rest assured of: the intended outcome would be such a system, because it all stems from, again, the belief that man is the measure of all things; that ye shall be as gods, and that and that's ultimately the the those are the ideas that the. Uh, Yet that the uh, the uh, system of the beast uh, is premised upon. Now, bear in mind, bear in mind. Now, uh, you know, we we don't know if 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 that's going to take place anytime soon. It might. Yeah, it might not. I understand that. You know, I could say that, but you know, I think it's only fair to let me speculate a little. Sure, sure. It, no, it, nothing wrong with that, Johnny. You yeah, know that. It's it's all. Of course, it's all. It's all. It's all in the. It's all in the hands of the Lord. It's all going to. It's all going to uh, unfold according to His prophetic schematic and everything the point is is and this is why this is why the research continues to drive me back to the scripture is that what we're with what we witness with these these uh various uh these various plans to uh, to establish a, a world utopia to create heaven on earth to amanitize the eschaton in the words of eric vogelin um um all of those are basically uh, uh, outward expressions of the same of the same ideas we see uh, 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 expressed by the adversary in the scripture. Ye shall be as gods, and that's why I go back to the scriptures 
more and more uh, to to identify to to identify these ideas these principles that uh, underpin all these various uh, socio political utopian crusades throughout history. Um, the, uh, it all seems to be an extension of uh, the original sin, you know, the eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you know, whereby gnosis was gained and the original rebellion began. Yes, exactly, exactly. And and with the 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 eating of the knowledge of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, we see that veneration of knowledge. Uh, and, you know, there, there's nothing wrong with knowledge. There's certainly nothing wrong with knowledge. And, and the Lord even uh, uh, urges uh, us to come near and let, uh, he says, let us reason together. The problem is, is that according to uh, sociopolitical utopianism, which is just basically an outgrowth of Gnosticism, we are supposed to reason apart from him. And thus, what happens to reason? Reason is apotheosized. Reason becomes God. The, the intellect of man is deified. That's, that's the slippery slope to, uh, you know, towards which we find ourselves sliding if we attempt to reason apart from God. Which is why uh, you keep uh, going back to Scripture, uh, using it as your anchor and your more, uh, your source of illumination. Uh, I guess I guess illumination's a bad word, but... Uh, no, in the truest sense of the word illumination, you know, it's the truest sense of the true Christian, illumination of the true Christian is applied here, not the illumination of... The city of man. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Thank you for the Augustinian. In <laughs> uh, one of Jesus' parables, is it all you just like it just totally pointed out to me? He says, you know, Matthew thirteen thirty. Let let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So, it that's probably am I clo- I'm pretty close on that. Am I? Yes. Yeah. What were the whole entire broad picture that you have explained about social political utopianism? As simple as the scriptures teach us, you brought aside to show people look at how deep it really goes, and look at why we have to be on our guard constantly. Right. It, it's like why he says that you know that. We are, you know, truly on a watchtower, and we, uh, we were, I was discussing in an elders meeting uh, this morning about having to be watchful, all of us, like you, you, uh, Phil, and you, Johnny, now, uh, you know, and have been, but I'm talking about, it's real important why we are to be watched, because look at how far, and look at how deep this, you know, this muck is that, uh, that people are, are falling into this pit, right? And here comes people are falling. You said, I, I know you. You said that uh, you were talking about Jeremiah and people falling into that pit, and you really like bring it out. Like, look at this. Here it's presenting itself, and it's no wonder that you know even though God is sovereign and He knows who's going to come to Him or not. Look at what the obstacles we have to go through in order. You know, sometimes in you know in order to be regenerated, you know, to really, I mean, I don't know, stiff-necked people, yes, that human beings are, definitely. 
Right. I'd like to praise Phil. Uh, you know, uh, Phil, you know, you're a political commentator and a journalist, and uh, I know you don't think of yourself as a ministry, but you really do have a very valuable ministry um, teaching others about truth, you know, about our twisted society and its roots. And you've really helped to scrub the dark uh, haze off the glass that we see through darkly. Uh, well, I, I really appreciate that. That 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 place is a tremendous uh, honor on my shoulders, of course, though, because you know if 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 I'm going to exposit the word, if and, and if I'm going to serve the Lord, I, I have to, you know, I have to do it right. And everything and, uh, and well, you know, I want to stand on the battlefield with you because you have really brought me like where, where I have been heading for, you know, when I met Johnny. Uh, where I've been heading is totally, I, I, I would never self-doubted myself I was on the right track, right? But I just needed, I knew it was going deeper, right? And I knew God was putting me in this position, you know? Like, reading City of God, these are really hard reads for a lot of people. Sure. You know? It is, it's taken me a while to really, I mean, I have, I, I'm studying City of God, the, the, the book, you know, with the scriptures, of course. They're always there. It's, they never leave, but it's like, uh, what you're telling me is all that I'm seeing, and it's, it's even like, wow, I mean, Augustine is explaining this, and here you're like a, a modern-day Augustine, sort of, you know? You no, know, <laughs> not even. You're doing, what's, you're doing exactly what Irenaeus is doing when he wrote Against Heresies, exposing all these things, and they are very complicated. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's like, look at how complicated it's gotten, and this is really necessary because now you can reach those intellectuals, and I hope that the intellectuals that stumble upon the Iron Show, you know, will hear this particular show. And and a lot of Christians, matter of fact, you know, eschatologist Christians, by the way. One of my friends, Stephen Hand, who uh, used to do a, a program, it was an outstanding program called uh, uh, TCR Reports, uh, Traditional Catholic Reports. One of the things that he observed that I can I consistently have referred back to in, ter in terms of the scripture and the scriptural basis for, you know, Paul and my research is the first epistle of John, where John is talking about Gnosticism because he was combating Gnosticism. He was taking Gnosticism head on at the time because, he, you know, they, of course, the disciples were there as this ancient heresy actually took shape right before their very eyes. Yeah, Gnosticism was very popular at the time. Yeah. Um, it's uh, relatively hidden now, but at the time it was well in the open. Yeah, but but um, um, he he calls it in the first epistle of John, he calls it the spirit of Antichrist, and he says yeah. that spirit is already in the world. And uh, uh, personally, personally, you know, personally speaking, I, I think that we, you know, we saw uh, the, uh, we saw the, uh, uh, public acceptance of it with uh, 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 Jesus before uh, Jesus before uh, Pontius Pilate with Barabbas and uh, uh, Pontius Pilate asked the crowd, "Well, who should I release uh, to you? Should I release Jesus or should I release Barabbas?" Yeah, they wanted Barabbas. They were expecting a warrior. And, and here's some interesting, interesting little etymological background. Um, Jesus, of course, was the Son of God. Barabbas' name meant son of his father. So who was Barabbas' father? And Jesus was the Christ. Who was Barabbas' father? Obviously, Barabbas uh, embodied principles that were antithetical to Christ and anti-Christ. Yeah. 
And uh, his father was an anthropocentric soteriology. Yeah, yeah, because he was a zealot and he believed that 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 they were going to overthrow Rome and and that they were going to move the hand of God. It was Antichrist. And what does uh what does the term Antichrist connote? It connotes an individual who is antithetical to Jesus, who who embodies principles that are antithetical to Jesus Christ. It's and enable again. Yeah. And the and the crowd of course, accepted Barabbas, and and Barabbas was a zealot, was committed to overthrowing Rome and and establishing heaven on earth, uh, uh, basically forcing the hand of God through violent political activism, basically amanitizing yeah, amanitizing the eschaton, which of course wow. is the core belief of sociopolitical utopianism, which is an outgrowth of Gnosticism, which John in his first epistle characterizes as the spirit of Antichrist, which is already in the world. In the world. And, and you know, have you read uh, uh, Hippoly- Hippolytus's Christ and Ant- Treatise on Christ and Antichrist? No, I have not. Oh, you, if you read it, you, uh, he has some, he'll throw some of his ideas in it, but you're getting to the heart of his, what he's saying about Christ and Antichrist. Anyway, keep going so we can, you can continue your point. Basically, all my point is is that the you know the conceptual, philosophical, theological uh, premises for all sociopolitical utopianism can be found in Gnosticism, which is, for all practical purposes, the spirit of Antichrist, and it's that inverted hermeneutic of Gnosticism that makes it perhaps the most uh, the most uh, uh, just virulent form of of Satanism, and I, yes, I do call it a, uh, I do call it Satanism. Now, not all Gnostics will lay claim to the term Satanism. Luciferianism, I'll yeah, call it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, well, uh, Lucifer, uh, according to Gnostic belief, uh, he was the good guy. He was the one that came to the garden to uh, liberate us uh, from this. Uh, this uh, uh, evil god who was this odious deity, uh, he was here to liberate us, and uh, according to Gnostic belief. And uh, I've always thought that the, uh, the, uh, our, all of our science and art and medicine and literature is really kind of a band-aid it, to it, cover to up uh, the wound that we received by being expelled from the Garden of Eden. We needed this uh, science to... Uh, take care of us apart from God. To a certain extent it is. I mean it's all of it stems from uh from a a distorted view of Sophia. Uh again Sophia being the Greek word for wisdom, which which uh is it, you know the the scriptures uh tells us that uh, that that you know we should de- desire Sophia. Solomon asked for wisdom. The scriptures makes it clear that am, among the, the among the unbelievers we should conduct ourselves with Sophia with wisdom the the problem is is that that sophia cannot be divorced from god sophia emanates from god wisdom emanates from god and what the inverted hermeneutic of gnosticism does is it portrays sophia wisdom as the creator of jehovah who in turn creates the numa of man in a very tyrannical and evil sadistic fashion thrust the numa of man into the ontological confines of the physical universe, imprisons him in a cell of flesh, and uh, leaves him to his own devices. Uh, so wisdom is the original uncaused cause yes. in Gnostic belief. Yes, yes. 
when as uh, as we understand it wisdom wisdom emanates from god wisdom did not create god the irony of it and this is one of the internal contradictions of gnosticism is that according to the gnostics sophia realized she made a grave mistake in creating uh jehovah well if sophia is wise why is she performing such an unwise act and if Sophia is, Sophia is by definition God, and God is by definition perfect, the uh, perfection does not make mistakes. So you see, there's already an internal contradiction uh, inherent to uh, Gnosticism, and uh, the, you know the, the Gnostic- it's like the idea that you can't know reality. Well, if you can't know reality, then that very idea is based in reality, comes from reality, so it's a conclusion uh, drawn from insufficient premises. Right, no, you can't, make, you can't make any sort of bold declarative statement, which would essentially be a statement of fact in a universe where facts have been banished to metaphysical fantasy. That's just, that's, that's the utterance of an incoherence, that's, that's self-refuting. This the same holds true for uh, moral relativism, which holds that you know, uh, morals are, are are all relative to whoever uh, you know, relative to the situation, relative to whoever is faced with a moral uh, decision. And absolute truth is is uh, absolutely non-existent, which again is the statement of absolute fact. And uh, if you're making a statement of absolute fact when you have simultaneously banished absolute fact to the realm of metaphysical fantasy, uh, then you are guilty of the utterance of an incoherence. You are, you're basically guilty of a self-refuting argument. But nevertheless, that's the sort of thinking that pervades uh, sociopolitical utopianism. You see many a Marxist theoretician promoting moral relativism, and of course moral relativism is a cornerstone of secular humanism and what have you. Whereas, I mean... Moral relativism to me is an oxymoron. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I don't, I don't think it's kind of not, it's not, but it's, I think relativism and morals. I said that, well, there's, there's nothing moral about relativism, really. It's just. No, they're, they're mutually exclusive terms, and yet, yeah. yet we see a juxtaposition there. Which I yeah. mean, that's that's like that's like dry water. That's like saying yeah. I'm going to paint my house a bright shade of black. I, mean, <laughs> I know. I mean, it's just it's it's just how they're thinking. It's just really it's just I, you, these people are like I want to say, are you for real? Kind of like uh, yeah. Like, uh, uh, if you're uh, professing a uh, relative truth uh, uh, as opposed to an absolute truth. You're really, you're really unmoored and uh, free-floating from uh, anything that's uh, concrete. You're, right. uh, you're grasping at straws. Right, yeah. right. And, well, and, it's, like the, it's like the senator, uh, what's his name, Senator, uh, who just talked about, after all the information is against global warming, I'm just going to use this as an example. This last week he came out and said that the, us that don't, you know, uh, you know 31,000 scientists, climatologists who are against it, are, uh, he wants to relate that global warming is, that we're the Hitlers, right? <laughs> that, what, do we, what do you say? How do you say that he, it's like Hitler, that global warming is real, and those of us that do not believe are like Hitler when he's the socialist? Yeah. Well, well, the, the funny, socialist. Yeah, the, like, now, I can't help thinking that this whole global warming thing, this whole 
global warming lie is a is a uh, is a tool to usher in the new carbon currency, the uh, the carbon credit. Um, on which, uh, really, it seems to me that this uh, technocracy uh, that'll be the uh, monetary basis of uh, the technocracy that you're talking about. One of the one of the uh, preeminent theoreticians of uh, technocratic uh, of the technocratic paradigm was uh, was uh, uh, M. King uh, Cubert, uh, who of course was the founding father of uh, peak uh, peak oil theory, uh, right. which uh, this this notion of uh, finite resources and and of course population pressure being uh, one of the uh, major uh one of the major uh, uh strains on those finite resources uh is is of course a mainstay of uh a mainstay of radical environmentalism interesting thing about uh uh the claim that uh uh those who uh are skeptical about global warming are tantamount to holocaust denying neo nazis the interesting thing about that is that uh the Nazis, which constituted the dialectical rivals of, of the communists, who who adhered to uh, their own variety for for a time there, uh, uh, their own variety of environmentalism, uh, they embraced their they embraced a, a, a form of radical environmentalism. For instance, uh, Ernest Lehman, who was a professor of uh, botany, once wrote, "Quote: We recognize that separating humanity from nature, from the whole of life, leads." to humankind's own destruction and to the death of nations. Only through a reintegration of humanity into the whole of nature can our people be made stronger. That is the fundamental point of the biological task of our age. Humankind alone is no longer the focus of thought, but rather life as a whole. Thus, this striving toward connectedness with the totality of life, with nature itself, a nature into which we are born, this is the deepest meaning and the true essence of national socialist thought, unquote. Now, One of the uh, major principles of the uh, Georgia Guidestones. Uh-huh. Hey. <clears throat> well, implicit in Lehman's statement is the occult belief that the individual is merely a receptacle for being, which in turn must be renew- reunited with the monad of nature itself. And, and uh, astute listeners will recognize the parallels between layman's views and Gnostic cosmologies. Uh, the, uh, again, recall our discussion of Gnostic cosmology. Uh, according to traditional Gnosticism, uh, the pneuma of man was wedded to the divine pneuma in a pre-cosmic uh, unity, but that unity was divided by a lesser god that the Gnostics equated with Jehovah, and a manatist Gnosticism transplants the pre-cosmic unity that precosmic unity within the ontological plane of the physical universe, and for the amanitist Gnostic of radical environmentalism, the totally biologicized pneuma of man is wedded to the pneuma of nature, and so you, so you, Gaia. yeah, so you see this, 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 yeah, Gaia, this, this notion of Gaia, which is basically a, a, another intimation of of the monad or the the one, the one being. Uh, yeah. is, is the the true origins the the true originator of man and where from whence man came and from whence man must return and man must remain perennially connected to, but maintaining the uh, mesotheistic 
uh, proclivities of traditional Gnosticism. And misotheistic, by that I mean the God-hating proclivities. Misotheism, yeah. Yeah, misotheism basically is is a very derisive view of, of God. Uh, radical environmentalists viewed the uh, introduction of theistic conceptions of God, particularly Christianity, as the corrupting force that divorced the spirit of man, the pneuma of man, from the pneuma of nature. And, of course, Gnostic cosmology provided the foundation for the Amanitist eschatology of all sociopolitical utopian movements. But Lehman's monadic conception of nature also provides the metaphysical uh, premises for uh, the political doctrine of uh, collectivism. And these, uh, and Amanitist eschatology and collectivism, are two dialectical commonalities shared by communism and Nazism or Hitlerian fascism. And the Gnostics and the pagans and the environmentalists, uh, all these groups, uh, what they have in common is they all uh, equate nature with their God. Yeah, yeah. For all practical purposes, nature becomes the monad, the one, the one, uh, the, 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 the very, uh, uh, you know, the very singularity from which man existed the being and man becomes a little more than a receptacle for being and as a receptacle for being he must remain perennially connected to being he comes from being he returns to being and being uh, uh, being is for all practical purposes god <laughs> yeah and for those who embrace that philosophy i mean how much is your life really worth not a whole lot it's <laughs> you know, not a whole lot and they, they, you see you see this this sort of devaluation of man with radical uh, environmentalist uh, rantings of individuals such as Paul Ehrlich, major... Uh, Is he the one at Berkeley who uh, has this uh, society, uh, almost like sort of a religion that uh, says, maintains that uh, they must, uh, we must eradicate man from the earth, uh, that we're the the earth's worst enemy, and uh, you know, you know, my uh, my uh, uh, retaliation or uh, you know my statement to that is, well, (laughs) you first, you know, be my guest. Have at it, buddy. That's all I can say. (laughs) <laughs> it, it, you know, which, there you go, Johnny. <laughs> which 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 doesn't which doesn't make a whole doggone lot of sense. You know, if if we are so interconnected with uh, nature, if we're all uh, we're all just a, a bu- you know a bunch of these blue little alien you know noble savages like in uh, Avatar, and it's perennially connect- connected to. Uh, the uh, divine pneuma of nature itself and everything, then then how is it that that wiping us out is going to somehow pay homage to that divinity if we are all receptacles for that divinity? It's an absurd uh, disconnect in their belief system. Yeah, it's a it's self-refuting again. It's it's self-refuting. And if you, if you notice idiots like uh, Paul Ehrlich who presented the population bomb, contending that human population uh, was uh, inextricably linked to environmental degradation, idiots like him are are not even demographers. They're not non-demographers dealing with I mean, demography. Who really wants to give man as much power? Yeah, we have capability of setting off every nuclear bomb that is in. The, the you know the, the world today, but I, you know for some reason you know that that's 
you know, I don't, you know, that's not going to happen. I, it might, you know, it could happen. I don't know. I can't speculate either. But you think that it, it is absurd for man to think that, you know, even the population is, you know, thinking, oh, the world's going to be overpopulated, which is never going to happen because it, it is a proven fact that 150,000 people die every 24 hours, right? Right. So there's, you know, and you can fit every single human being. I like Ken, Dr. Ken Hovind says that you could, you know, every human being can fit in the, you know, the city of, or in the city of uh, uh, Jacksonville, Florida, you know? Right. And with a, you know, with a square around them, like, you know, aren't, you know, like, Length, you know, side by side. So, and there's so much vastness, you know, in, in the world today. There's, it's, it, you, there's just no way that we, even though we'd be fruitful and multiply, we're ever gonna, you know, multiply to that extreme. No. You know, even if we did, we still could, you know, affect the environment. Except maybe in a microclimate, like, you know, great pollutions of pouring stuff into the rivers and. You know, the basic environmental things that you shouldn't do, you know? Right, right. The common sense. Well, men, we've passed the uh, two-hour mark, passed it about five minutes ago, and uh, I would really like to uh, end the show with a final uh, question to Phil, and that is, uh, you know, Phil, um, I can't help thinking, and I have been thinking through this whole conversation, that the uh, Gnostics, the atheists, the progressives, uh, the uh, technocrats, at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, they really haven't answered that final, most intense, important question of the human condition. And uh, that being, what happens when I die? And uh, I can't help thinking also that they must, uh, in their quietest moments, uh, they must lie in fear. Exactly. And, you know, ultimately, you know, I, I use the term conspiracy to discuss this. And, and in a sense, it is a conspiracy. If you look at the etymology of the word conspiracy, it means to breathe together. And that's what you have. You have think tanks, networks, constellations of organizations with like-minded individuals all breathing together, so to speak, because they all... Uh, adhere to uh, one or, or one or the other permutation of the same idea. Um, now they're at variance uh, uh, with one another over the interpretations of that one idea, but it's the same, none, nonetheless, the same unified field theory of of, of uh, human society itself, and that is that man should be uh, condensed and and, and uh, forced to live in a collective. Um, but but. Uh, but gathering together uh, from each other, that's not enough. Don't they have an answer that comforts them about death? No, they don't. No, they don't. They really don't. Now, now, uh, you know, according to their own secular mythology, sur uh, survival constitutes salvation. And immortality is, for all practical purposes, the continuity of the species itself, genetic memory. And that's why man is no longer guided by... Uh, the uh, categorical imperative, so to speak, as it was, you know, presented by Immanuel Kant, the categorical imperative, man adhering to certain uh, objective moral laws based on how logically coherent they are. But man is now, you know, adheres to a genetic imperative, uh, uh, the, the, the imperative to 
maintain the continuity of the species. But at the end of the day, they see that even that is meaningless and that that's fraught with all sorts of internal contradictions. And so, you know, you have you have people who are just profoundly unhappy, profoundly unhappy, unhappy, profoundly miserable. You know, John D. Rockefeller, he was asked, how 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 much can you acquire before you're happy? How you 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 have you know so much money, you have so much wealth, you know when will you be satisfied? And he says, uh, just he he told he told the the person who asked him the question. He says, I just need a little more, just just a little bit more, but a little more never proved to be enough. And that's what uh, at the end of the day, these these people are are empty. These people are empty. They and they don't know, you know, who we know. We know we know Jesus Christ, and and Jesus Christ. You know, not to give an altar call, but Jesus Christ will fill you up. He will give you meaning. He will give you purpose. He will give you value. You derive your value from Him, and you derive your meaning from Him. And at the end of the day, we know that these people, being the embodiment of that antichrist spirit, that. Uh, uh, John talked about in his first epistle. They don't know him, and so that's why it's it's all a house of cards. It's all it's all falling down. It's toppling, you know, around their ears even as they're attempting to erect it. And that's why even if they ever even if if they ever tangibly enact their vision for uh, society, it, the instant they do, the fuse on the bomb is lit, and it's going to it, it will come apart all around them. Because none of it, none of it will last in the face of, of of the Lord. I mean, we're talking about the God who brought Egypt to its knees, and the God who spoke the universe into existence. Yes, yeah, spoke the universe into existence, and you know what? He can speak it out if he wanted to. That's right. So, so you know, these guys, it's uh, all for all practical purposes. You know, it's it's all a vapor, and it's all fading, and that's why I, I take great comfort. When I read the scriptures, and that's one of the reasons this research draws me back to to the Lord and to His Word, because it reminds me that you know, <laughs> as insurmountable as it appears, it's it's really all nothing. It's all vapor. Yeah, and I'd like to uh, address the people. I'd like to talk to the people that are listening to this right now. If you're one of those people, one of those Gnostics, one of those pagans, one of those technocrats. Uh, you, honestly, you really do not have a answer for death. You really do not have an answer for what happens when I die. And uh, Jesus is the only answer. And, uh, Phil, we got no problem with you giving an altar call. I mean, you're on the Iron Show, right, Rick? No, you already, you, he basically did. It's, yeah, <laughs> Phil, Phil is exactly right. Uh, Jesus is the whole, you know, it, it, it is all about him anyway. And he is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the only one. In him alone is their satisfaction. Um, I like the saying that Jonathan Edwards says and John Piper says. It's one of my favorite things that I say to myself daily just to remind myself. is God is most glorified when you are most satisfied in him. Uh, that's what it is, is... is the secondary things that a Christian is waiting for of heaven and the place that we're headed to, if we don't have satisfaction in God first alone, our creator, you know, the other things are, you know, what, what are the other things really matter? Those are just the, uh, 
the, the blessings that God gives us. And for the person that's caught into that, to understand that it's going to, you're going to, of all that you understand of, you know, social, political utopianism and uh, technocracy as, right? Am I saying these right, Philip? Yeah, you are. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and just like, man, this is like a lot of new territory that I like, I, I'm exploring them. Now, now I'm going to be exploring this. I'm going to have to, you know, going to have to get your book and, and, and put it in one of my collections so I can kind of understand it even more because I'm really, like I said, it, I, I, I'm on the right path. But for that person that's out there, uh, you, you're there. You're right in the middle of it, and you're going to come to that conclusion. And you really, either you're going to come to that conclusion uh, when it's too late, or you're going to come to that conclusion. You can come to that conclusion right now because here it is, right out. It's laid out in front of you. You can eat at the table. The feast is there. God has said, "Come, here you go. Come, take and eat. Taste and see that the Lord is good, and He's the best thing that you ever bite into. He is the manna from heaven." He is the bread of life. And he is the only answer to death. Yeah, well, he's been there, you know? Yeah. <laughs> he's been there. Yeah. You, 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 you know, you say you mentioned death to God, and he can say, hey, been there, done that. And and, and now that I've done that, you know, you, you've nothing to fear and anything, because to, to live is, to, is Christ, to die is to gain. And that's a good place to end the conversation. You know, Phil... You know, I've been listening to you for a long time. I'm a big fan of yours, and uh, it's just great to talk to you. I tell you, I love listening to you, but it's uh, a lot better to be able to talk to you, and uh, it's just been great. So, uh, Phil, uh, hey, uh, did you enjoy your time on the Iron Show, hanging out with your boys, Rick and Johnny? Uh, do you think you'll come back? We'd sure like to have you back. Will you come back? Absolutely, yeah, and if you want, I can bring my brother along with me, Paul. <laughs> Okay, you ready, guys? Yeah. All right, ready. One, One two, two, three. three. Goodbye. Goodbye. Hey, Phil, you still there? Johnny, I'm hanging up now. <laughs> Go away.
The Ascendancy of the Scientific Dictatorship. Available now at Amazon.com. The 2006 Book Surge Edition is available in an expanded and revised form, which includes some of their predictions that are now coming to pass, such as the demographic winter, the population implosion, and the fall of the European Union. Articles by the Collins Brothers, available at www.conspiracyarchive.com. Click on the articles link, then look for contributing authors, then look for Paul and Philip Collins. Collins Brothers on audio. Click the blog link at www.conspiracyarchive.com. You will see a comprehensive list of archived audio interviews with Paul and Philip Collins. Also check out the podcast, The Collins Brothers Unleashed, at Podomatic.com. Go to Podomatic.com and enter the Collins Brothers Unleashed in the search box. Thank you. We love you, Lord. I thank you so much for the Iron Show and for my friends, Johnny and Rick, Lord. Father, I thank you. I love you, Lord. I love you so much, Jesus.